Thank you, Pete, for reading God's Word to us. Good morning, everyone. If you don't know me, my name's Matt, and I'm the assistant minister here at Helensburg and Stanwell Park Anglican Church. And I just wanted to clarify, if you're wondering what's going on, I'm starting a new sermon series on Messianic Psalms. Uh, Steve will continue his uh, series on 2 Corinthians when he comes back. We just like to keep you on your toes, keep you guessing what's going on. So when you see me, it'll be the Psalms. When you see Steve, it'll be 2 Corinthians. And also, I will be uh, answering some questions. So during the sermon, if you want to use slido.com, feel free to do that. And at the end, I'll answer some questions. So, algebraic equations. Yep, that's exactly right. Algebraic equations, like the one you see on your screen there, is something that divides people. Most of the time, you either love algebra or you hate it. There are people in this room that just went, wahoo, just speaking about algebraic equations. They love it, it puts a smile to their face, and they've already started solving the equation on the screen. While others see an equation like this, and they just moan. They think, oh no, as soon as they started adding letters to maths, I just switch off. Some of you think to yourself, I didn't understand it at high school. I still don't understand it, and I'm doing just fine as an adult. It is something I do not need to worry about. Well, I believe that the book of Psalms is similar to algebra. There are those who love it and those who don't really understand it and don't seem to know how to read it and what to do with it. The book of Psalms is poetry. It's a bunch of songs that used to be sung. It's not a book with a story that can be followed. And in terms of reading it as history, it is difficult to just figure out where in Israel's history it was written, what it's talking about. And so reading the Psalms can be challenging. Now, while this algebraic equation has been on the screen, I'm sure someone in this room has solved for x. What does x equal? 150. And that just happens to be exactly the number of psalms there are in this, the book of psalms. (laughs) There's 150 of them, and that is a lot. And so reading from the beginning all the way through to the end can be really daunting. And so like this algebraic equation... The Psalms, well, you either love them or you're not quite sure how to figure them out. Martin Luther, he called it, the Psalms, a little Bible, the summary of the Old Testament, meaning that when we read the book of Psalms, we actually read everything from the creation of the world all the way through to God's final judgment and Jesus' return at the end. And they've also been referred to as the inspired hymn book for ancient Israel. And they are important for us because they help us through poetry, through prose and song to understand who God is. Figuring them out means understanding that in them, God reveals himself to us. Not, as how, not how we want to see God, but how he wants us to understand him. In them, we see God reveal his love for his people. We see humans wrestling with God, trying to figure out what it means for God to be sovereign, God's wrath, God's judgment. 
we see his character. In them, God's Son, the Messiah, is also revealed to us. And that is why this sermon series is called Messianic Psalms. So, we will be focusing in this sermon series on a group of psalms that we are grouping together as the Messianic Psalms. And there's two reasons that are important to note why they are Messianic Psalms. That is speaking about the Messiah. The first one is that the, the word Messiah is used to describe the King of Israel, God's anointed one. And in Psalm 2 that was just read, the King is King David. And secondly, these psalms can be understood as messianic because Jesus actually uses them to point to himself and say, I am the Messiah. And also, the inspired New Testament writers use them to reiterate their point when they say, Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. So there's the immediate historical context referring to the kings of Israel. But there's also a reference to someone greater who will sit on the throne for all time who is known to be Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us as we study your word today. Help us as we look at Psalm 2 to grow in our understanding of who you say that you are, that we might better recognize Jesus Christ as the anointed one and your son who died for us on the cross. In your glorious name we pray, amen. You say the price of my love is not a price that you're willing to pay. You cry in your tea, but you hurl in the sea when you see me go by. Why so sad? Remember we made an arrangement when you went away. Now you're making me mad. Remember despite our estrangement, I'm your man. You'll be back. Soon you'll see, you'll remember you belong to me. You'll be back, time will tell. You'll remember that I served you well. Oceans rise, empires fall. We have seen each other through it all. And when push comes to shove, I will send a fully armed battalion to remind you of my love. Da 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 Well, if you're unfamiliar with it, that is a song out of the Broadway musical Hamilton. And Hamilton is about the American Revolution. And this song in the musical Hamilton is sung by King George III, the king of England at the time. And it is there to describe his dismay, his disappointment during the the American War of Independence. And in this song, King George, he basically expresses his belief that the American colonials will come crawling back to him, 
crawling back to the British Empire once their rebellion is over. He sings, oceans rise, empires fall. We have seen each other through it all. And when push comes to shove, I will send a fully armed battalion to remind you of my love. In this song, King George is actually mocking the Americans and their fight for independence. He is so proud, he is so arrogant, that he fully believes in the end they will come running back to him. And it is sung by a king. It is a royal song, a modern-day version of what we have just read in Psalm 2. Now, Psalm 2 is a royal psalm. It's a psalm attributed to King David. But where King George in this version that we just heard illustrates it's his own pride and arrogance that he's hoping for, David sings with the boldness and confidence of one who knows that the Lord God Almighty is on his side. Now, to begin looking at this in more detail, it's uh, important for us to examine um, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together because they're considered the gateway to understanding the rest of the book. And Psalm 1 begins with the words, blessed is the man. And Psalm 2 ends with, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 1 is more personal. It examines the righteous and the unrighteous. Psalm 2 is more cosmic. It is concerned with every nation on earth. And they basically end up the same way for those who do not delight in the law of the Lord. Psalm 1 says, the way of the wicked will perish. And in Psalm 2, it says, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Both these uh, psalms pose a very great question for us and challenge us. Do we delight in the law of the Lord? Do we believe what is written in the Bible? Because those who do not are destined to perish. And so where we see in Psalm 1, where the consequences of rejecting God's law as being an individual or personal thing, in Psalm 2, it zooms out and shows how the punishment for denying God stretches to the very ends of the earth. It has universal consequences. And verse 1 to 3 explains how the rulers and nations of the world, led by their kings, are rebelling against God and his law. His word that established the anointed one. And then in verses 4 to 9, we see God responding to this rebellion. And it's a response that actually is seen when God's anointed one speaks and reminds us of his law, of what God has already done. Ultimately, what we see at the end of Psalm 2 is that God is at work against the rebellion against this global rejection of his word. God is at work in establishing his anointed one. And he has given his anointed one authority over everything. And according to King David, in Psalm 2, God is the one who is to be feared or 
you will perish. Read with me, starting at uh, Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In writing this psalm, David is actually commenting on what he is seeing around him that's going on around him in that present day. And it doesn't seem good. The nations rage and the people plot in vain. The kings all gather together to discuss what to do about this nation of Israel. And I wonder if you look around the world today and think a similar thing. The nations rage. The peoples plot in vain. The governments around the world seem to perpetually discuss how to silence the Christian voice. Just last night, I was speaking to somebody about how their kids in schools just are constantly silenced with their Christian voice. Yet David, in this psalm, has confidence in the Lord, confidence that he is on our side, and David reminds us that all of it will come to nothing. It says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? It is all done in vain. And why? Why is it done in vain? Well, it says in verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. One of the commentators describes this passage as divine ridicule. Here we see God sitting in heaven laughing. He's laughing out loud at the nations around Israel and their futile actions, at man's attempts to thwart his plans. It is God and it is God alone that has anointed the king of Israel. It is him who has put the king on Zion's hill in Jerusalem. And as I was writing this part of uh, my sermon, I just noticed a little ant walking across my desk, and I just grabbed my finger and I squashed it. Didn't even think about it, me versus the ant. The ant didn't even have a chance. And that's a similar picture to what we should think here. God is the one who established the heavens and the earth who flung the stars into space, the one who knit you together in your mother's wounds, the one who knows how many hairs you have on your head. He sits in the heavens and he laughs at those who plot against him. Their plotting is all in vain. But more than this, he goes even a step further. He holds them in derision. And when he speaks, his wrath, Those who are against him are terrified. Now, I wonder if you have a picture of our Heavenly Father that looks like this. Psalm 2 reveals God to be a God who is willing to fight for us. He has the ability to make the nations seem like ants under his finger. 
he has chosen to reveal himself in this way, in his word. And I wonder if you struggle to believe that he has the power to do anything at all when he actually is in control of everything. And in verse 7, we hear God's anointed one speak. Read with me verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now we need to understand that in Psalm 2, David here is referring to something that has already happened. And so I want you to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. So flip back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. The heading in my Bible is the Lord's covenant with David. And we pick up the narrative actually after David has become king. He's already been anointed as the king of Israel. Until this time, it says God's dwelling place has been in a tent. He's been in a tent ever since they came out of Egypt. And David, in thankfulness to God, decides it's time to build him a house. It's time to build the temple of the Lord. But before David is able to begin building, God speaks to him through Nathan, and this is what he says. Please read with me, uh, starting at verse 10. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 10. It says, And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his king, kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. God tells David, you're not building me a house. I am actually building you a house. Actually, more than that, specifically, I am building your household into a kingdom that will last forever. And it's God's plan through David to establish a family for himself. And he actually describes David as his son. It says that in verse 14. It says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. It is this promise that God will call David his son and through David's offspring, God will establish a throne of his kingdom forever. It's this promise here in 2 Samuel that David is talking about in Psalm 2. And so let's flip back to Psalm 2 again and let's read Psalm 2 with that promise to David in mind while we read it. Starting at verse 7 again. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, 
lest he be angry, and you will perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The nations might rage. They may plot against God's anointed one, but they aren't just rebelling against the king of Israel. They're actually rebelling against God, who has established his king on Zion, who has created a household through the line of David and who has called David his son. The nations are rebelling against God, who has given the household of David the nations as a heritage. He promises the ends of the earth to be their possession. So David says to the nations around him, nations be warned, all you rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and kiss the son. Because if you don't, the Lord will be angry with you and you will perish. David is so confident in God and the promise that God has made to him that he turns to the nations and he says to them, kiss my feet. And if you don't, the wrath of God will be the way that you perish. This promise is a kingdom that will last forever. And it gives David, as God's anointed one, the king, confidence and boldness. It reminds him of who God calls him to be, a beloved child of God. Now, Psalm 2 assures us that God's promise for the Davidic kingdom will endure for all time. And David, he reigned around 1000 BC in the Old Testament. And after his death, we have recorded in the Old Testament generations after generations after generation of kings that come, they reign, and they die. Some kings are good kings, some kings are bad kings. And the kingdom of Israel goes through times of prosperity where it seems like this promise is true. But we also read in the Old Testament times when the kingdom of Israel is enticed by the world around them, by these nations that they are meant to be set apart from. They turn their back on the promise of God and they end up scattered. They are overthrown And the temple of the Lord, his house, is ruined. And so if this line of David was going to endure for all time, what happened? Where do we see it today? Where is the Davidic king? Where is the promised household of David? Or is this confidence that David had in Psalm 2 that God would forever be on his side and would always be victorious Is this confidence that David has, is this boldness just simply misplaced? I would like you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the very beginning of the New Testament. Read with me, Matthew 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
And then I'm not going to read them, but there's names. There's a whole list of names. And these names are really important because they are the family line, starting from Abraham, going through to David, and then from David on. And look with me. We're going to skip the names and look at Matthew 1, verse 17. It says this, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And Matthew's use here of the word Christ is important because Christ in Greek is the same word as in Hebrew for Messiah, which is translated in our Bible, the anointed one. By providing this genealogy, Matthew wants us in the very first chapter of the New Testament to identify that Jesus is the promised son found in Psalm 2. He is the son of God. He is in the line of David. He is of David's household. And Matthew wants us to recognize that Jesus ultimately fulfills the promise of God to David. And throughout Jesus' life, through his ministry, through his teaching, the question oftentimes comes up, and the answer is always the same. The question is, who is Jesus? And the answer is, he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the son of God. And we actually see a great example of this in Mark chapter 8, where Peter and Jesus are walking along. Jesus is walking with his disciples, and he asks them this question, who do people say that I am? And Peter replies, well, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say the prophets. And then Jesus asks him, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answers him, you are the Christ. You are this Messiah. You are the anointed one. And as the Christ, Jesus died. And he paid the penalty for us on the cross. And he rose again and he ascended into heaven. And the fulfillment of this royal psalm is realized As the anointed son, Jesus died. He paid the penalty for us on the cross and he rose again. And he appears to the disciples before he is ascended. And he says this in Matthew 28. We know it well. It says, all authority in heaven and and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. The nations that rage the nations that war, and the nations that will try and silence you from speaking about him. It's these same nations that Jesus says, go and make disciples of. And he also says, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And notice what he still promises here. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And Jesus ascends into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And one day he will come again to judge. And so David's warning still applies also, where he says, kiss the son. 
lest he be angry and you perish in the way. And Jesus commands his disciples to take his word, take the word of God to the nations, and that's exactly what they do. But more than this, in Psalm 2, it's this psalm that gives them the confidence and assurance when they go and do it. It gives them the boldness that God is with them and in control of everything. And I want to show you an example of them doing this in Acts chapter 4. And I believe it's a great passage that helps us apply Psalm 2 to our everyday lives. So turn with me to Acts chapter 4. So we're going to start at verse 23. So uh, Peter and John here have been arrested They're threatened and they're told not to speak at all in the name of Jesus. And they're now released. And I'm going to read from verses 23 uh, to 31 here. Please read along with me. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard it, they lifted their voice together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouths of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and they quote Psalm 2, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed one. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and all the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. When the disciples are threatened and told not to continue, They use the promise found here in Psalm 2 and pray that God would allow them to continue to speak with boldness. And friends, even today, we can speak with boldness about what Jesus has done for us. Because like David, our confidence is not on ourselves. It's not based on our own efforts and merit. We have been called God's dearly beloved children. He promises to be with us always to the end of the age. So speak with boldness about what Jesus has done for you. Now you might like to take a few minutes to consider uh, what's been said and maybe ask a question using slido.com. I'll be back in a few minutes.
after hearing such powerful words about what Jesus was promised to do back in the Psalms and then did achieve on the cross, why don't we stand and sing of those truths?